Stubby learned that something bad was happening. He associated this with the, the gas attacks and developed this mechanism for running through the trenches and barking in a way that alerted the troops. They came to rely on Stubbing as like, uh-oh, Stubby says there's going to be a gas attack. We better get our gas masks on. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, we welcome author Ann Bossom to share the story of Stubby the War Dog. If you're new to this podcast, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us. And they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love dog words. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts, including recommending a topic or guest. Thank you to everyone who's downloaded, subscribed, rated, and shared dog words. And it is very important to us that you share the podcast using whatever share feature your podcast service offers. It's pretty straightforward on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Sketcher, Buzzsprouts, etc. You, the listener, sharing the podcast is the best way for us to grow the audience and spread the word of Rosie Fund. Kansas City is getting a taste of fall weather, which means now is the perfect time to reserve your date for the Wires Underground Concert Series. If you live in the Kansas City area and would like to host a small and socially distant outdoor concert in your backyard or on your porch, please contact The Wires at thewiresduo at gmail.com. T-H-E-W-I-R-E-S-D-U-O at gmail.com. If you're not familiar with the alternative string duo, The Wires, it's the music you're listening to right now. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, my guest is author Anne Bossom. Anne, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you, Phil. Thank you. Anne is the author of multiple books, but in particular, Stubby the War Dog, is the reason we have you on and the author of Sergeant Stubby. Sounds like there might be some overlap between those two books <laughs> and we're going to get into that, but this is dog words. And one of my first questions to guests is typically, how did you become a dog person? Cause I don't think one could write this book without <laughs> being a dog person. If you're, uh, I can take them or leave them. I don't know that you would have had this much passion for your subject. Okay, so we're going to start right off with true confessions, which is that I was a cat person when I heard about Stubby. There were a few dogs in my past, but mostly cats, and I had put myself in that universe, and then this stray dog wandered out of history and into my life and would not leave me alone, and I write about nonfiction, but every now and then there are these moments where... The universe just seems to be sending you signals, and it was like a dog with a food dish wanting to get fed, and the idea just kept popping in my mind, you know, when are you going to write a book about me? I'm really ready for you to write about me, and um, it didn't take me long to be totally won over by Stubby, and by the time I was all done, I was seriously thinking about getting a dog, which would not have been a good idea because I travel a lot and I'm single. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I still like cats, but I'm rather fond of dogs too now. Stray dogs will do that to people, not necessarily make them write a book, but <laughs> convince them to do things that they otherwise might not have done. Open up a 
piece of your heart that you might not have known existed, and Stubby did that for you. For our listeners who don't know who Stubby is, which you and I seem to be conversant in Stubby, who is Stubby? Stubby is, um, he was a real dog. He wandered into World War I history in 1917 in the state of Connecticut when he w- became one of the dogs that started to hang out at a military training camp as U.S. troops prepared to go over and join the fight of World War I. And this was clearly a very remarkable dog. And we can get into the details of what we know about him and what we can guess. But one of the things that's critical to his story is that he and a soldier fell in love with one another. The soldier's name is Robert Conroy. And Conroy became so devoted to this dog that when it came time for the troops to ship out to France, he made sure Stubby came too. And the dog went on to become incredibly loyal and useful and ultimately famous for the services it provided in the trenches in France and the fame that followed it after, you know, spoiler alert, uh, he and Conroy survived and they came back to the United States. I do want to clarify, this is a dog that tagged along and a soldier who, for all intents and purposes, smuggled him into the theater of war he was not part of a canine unit. No, the um, there were canine units in several of the European armies that were part of the World War One theater, but the United States did not have an official canine unit until well into World War Two, and so there were lots and lots of dogs in World War One. Some of them were there officially; others were just buddies. And um, Stubby started out as a buddy and became dead useful. And that helped to really make him treasured, both during the war and afterwards. I want to circle back to his role in the war, but also you talk about afterwards. He was in Europe in 1917. He didn't pass until 1926. That's a long life for a dog that doesn't go to war. (laughs) A stray dog that who knows how old he was when he found this army training base and then to go to Europe, survive World War I, and come back and be an ambassador for the United States military for nine years. Yeah, no, it is it is remarkable. And um, it was not uncommon to assume at that time and even later on, I mean, perhaps people will say still, to assume that a dog that had experienced that level of combat intensity and potential trauma was not capable of coming back into civilian life. But Stubby definitely proved that theory wrong. I came to view Stubby as um, an antidote for PTSD during the war and afterwards. And I think there was very poor understanding of the level of trauma that the the humans had experienced and were coming back maimed and distraught and not necessarily clearly welcomed. But this 
dog was their friend and in the way that perhaps only a dog can be just this unconditional loyalty and there were numerous reunions of the world war one soldiers regionally and nationally after the war and stubby became a fixture at those and would recognize soldiers that he had known over in europe i mean it's just amazing this this was clearly very clever clever dog and also would recognize, and I'm getting a little ahead of here, but he would recognize other symbols from the war. And there was one instance that I read about where he was at a reunion and an American soldier had brought home a, a picklehaube, one of those pointy mm-hmm. German military uniform helmets. And Stubby saw it and, you know, the hair stands up on his back and he starts growling because he knew that to associate that with the enemy. What if that time had been yeah. seen as yeah. the enemy? I thought I won this war and now here's here's another yeah, enemy combatant. Here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And dogs never cease to amaze us with how smart and insightful they are. Mm-hmm. Getting veterans to talk about their experience is not easy that attitude of this was a call that I answered and now I'm going back to the farm or the factory or the grocer and living my life. Stubby was, excuse is not the right word because they didn't need an excuse, but maybe from their perspective they did, an opportunity to explore those feelings, explore those experiences, renew that camaraderie that that would help them heal and that a dog could provide that. Right, right. And a dog gave them permission to think about maybe more heartening moments from the war too. He was a reminder of some of the, the bonding and the normalcy that strangely is able to go on even in the midst of traumatic times. Let's talk a little bit about his role in the war. He wasn't just a mascot riding around, uh, you know, in the back of a, I was going to say a Jeep, but we're talking World War I, be more likely in the back of a horse-drawn cart. Cart, yeah. Uh, What were some of his exploits in Europe? Arguably, the first talent he had and it's the one that probably saved his life or at least his friendship with Robert Conroy is that he had been well trained during the season of preparations that went on in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where the soldiers were trained for this particular unit of the Yankee division. And one of the skills Stubby had picked up was very useful when the commanding officer for Robert Conroy discovered that this dog had been brought on board despite all orders that you were not supposed to bring, you know, no dogs allowed because there had been a lot of camp dogs and the people had seen this coming that they didn't want a bunch of pets coming over to Europe. I mean, I can imagine there could have been grave consequences for this and certainly disciplinary action. But Stubby knew that when the officer walks into the room that commands respect, if you're a dog, you sit down on your back legs and you lift up your right paw and you raise it up to your eye and give a doggy salute. And so that endeared him to 
the commanding officer and earned him the label of, of mascot. But soon after getting to the trenches, Stubby, as you know, developed other skills. One of the things he became very adept at was anticipating when there was going to be a gas attack. And as we all know about World War One, that was serious business. Mm-hmm. There was lots of injury that could come from the gas attacks, even death. And we don't know what clued the dog into this. I suspect it was some combination of maybe a sound cue because the loading of the shells that were filled with gas probably made a different sound than the loading of a shell that was a munition. Maybe there was a smell cue also. But in any case, Stubby learned that something bad was happening. He associated this with the the gas attacks and developed this mechanism for running through the trenches and barking in a way that alerted the troops. They came to rely on Stubby is like, "Uh uh-oh, Stubby says there's going to be a gas attack. We better get our gas masks on. And this was a period when not just humans had gas masks, but animals did too, because they were so essential, as you hinted, lots and lots of horses and these service animals in the European troops. So Stubby had a sort of a makeshift gas mask that was made for him. And so that helped him get through the war too. And um, that was his first claim to fame was just his ability to survive or, or alert people to these gas attacks. As the war progressed and moved out of the trenches, when the nature of the combat changed, the German army began to retreat, the Allies began pursuing these forces across the plains and fields of France and other countries. Stubby was stationed in France, and he, like other dogs, developed these rescue abilities to help to find people who had been wounded. And when you're fighting in a wheat field and a soldier has been wounded and is invisible, basically, Mm -hmm. because they've dropped below the sight lines. Yeah, I've played um, hide and seek in a field of wheat. Yeah, yeah, it's a good place to hide. Yeah, even if you're trying not to. Yeah, it's a bad place to be lost if um, you need medical care. But Stubby and other rescue dogs would be able to send these people out and help to lead rescue workers to them, humans to them. And Stubby had the ability to tell the difference between an allied soldier and an enemy soldier. So he would lead the medics to the French and the American soldiers. And again, I suspect smell had something to do with this. If you figure that each military force was eating a national diet, Mm -hmm. um, that probably created a national smell, more or less, uniforms, food, whatever, to the troops. And later on, Stubby became a, um, a guard dog when the armies began to accumulate prisoners of war. And that sort of reinforced who the good guys were, so to speak, and who you were expected to, um, to keep in line. And um, his final claim to fame is that he, in the fall of 1918, he was... Um, doing one of his little doggy patrols like he would do apparently and he he was not kept tied up he had a free reign to go where he wanted and he was on one of his prowls and he came across a german soldier and there are a lot of tall tales about stubby that was one of the bigger challenges of writing the book and the factual details are a little thin so some people say he was a, a german spy he could just as easily have been a deserter by the fall of 1918 
And in any case, Stubby knew he didn't belong where he was and started growling at the soldier. The soldier quickly figured out that there was no talking to this dog and calming him down and uh, began running away from Stubby. Stubby started barking some sort of an alarm that let the soldiers know, the Americans, his unit know that. Who by now had um, learned to listen to Stubby. Yeah, something's up. Let's go see what Stubby's caught now. And by the time they catch up with him, he has flattened the soldier on the ground and has a firm grip on the seat of the man's pants and probably the seat of the man, too, and has captured a German soldier, basically. So he didn't just gnaw on bones over there. You said there's some tall tales uh, about Stubby. How did you sort out the fact from the fiction in researching for this time. (laughs) Um, It took a lot of time and a lot of digging. Probably the biggest misconception about Stubby, and people will argue with me about this, and you will get people who will complain when I say Stubby was not an official sergeant in the U.S. Army. And we'd all like him to truly be Sergeant Stubby Mm -hmm. and to have earned that. That's certainly how he's become known. I looked so hard to find proof of this, that he had been made a a sergeant. I found nothing. Eventually, the evidence seemed overwhelming that it could not have happened. I read literally hundreds of newspaper articles about Stubby that were written in his lifetime. And in none of them, none of them is he ever referred to as Sergeant Stubby. Robert Conroy, the soldier who was his best friend, only calls him Stubby. I can go into some more of the the wealth of materials that I was able to uncover after I made connections with the family of Robert Conroy, who had kind of gotten separated from the story. They knew about Stubby, but the other historians who had been sort of keeping track of him did not know about them, but I was able to reconnect those two strands of the story and still found no proof that the dog had ever been made a sergeant. So somewhere along the line, somebody liked that alliteration. Well, I honestly think he was promoted by the internet. I think that this was a, a, you know, a bit of a fan work after we had the internet and it was irresistible and took hold. Mm -hmm. But that's when you begin to hear about Sergeant Stubby is in the 1990s. His story is rich enough that it does not need embellishment. No, it does not. (laughs) As an aside, the movie Bohemian Rhapsody about Freddie Mercury and Queen, if you're a fan of Queen and you watch the movie, you go, most of this stuff is just factually wildly inaccurate. And two members of Queen are producers on the story. The real story of Queen and Freddie Mercury is so good. Why are you making stuff up? And that appears to be the case with Stubby. Well, let's fill in some blanks. It's at. It's like there's nothing you need to do to make this a good story other than just find the facts and tell the story, which is what absolutely. you did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the program how I, I ended up writing about him twice. And that's because at that time, my publishing had been entirely for children through National Geographic. But National Geographic has an adult book division. And when they heard about Stubby, I mean, they were as one over as everybody else. And they're like, well, wouldn't you write about him for us so that we could have a a book for adult readers too? And so uh, that gave me the opportunity to do even more research. 
and really start to examine the story, not just about Stubby, but about the human side of the story and Robert Conroy's family background and how he, he really, this was the dawn. So after you get back from World War One, it's really the dawn of the, even the concept of um, public relations. But Conroy was the quintessential PR man for Stubby. His story is virtually absent from these newspaper accounts, but it's clear that his hand is there guiding attention and focus on Stubby. And, um, and it, it began to make even more sense after I found Robert Conroy's grandchildren, particularly Kurt, who is um, a huge fan of Stubby. His um, brothers and sister grew up listening to their grandfather tell stories about this dog and has kind of become the keeper of the family story at this point. And it really and, is uh, for, I would say, a grandchild. It probably is just a family story that this is, you know, the story right. your grandfather tells us. And you're not thinking, this is a story that everybody needs to hear. This is a story of friendship and recovery and healing and mm -hmm. responsibility and conviction and patriotism. But to put that all together is, as a child, you just sort of take for granted that this is family lore. Right. That's a very good point, Phil. I think that's important because um, we tend to under-recognize the importance of the stories that are right in front of us. And so, yes, you would have been proud of that as an individual, but maybe not aware of how resonant it would be in a wider world. And there might even and, be some um, false humility there. Well, who would care about this? This is just my story. Well, that's right. And it had kind of passed out of the family's hold. One of the things Robert Conroy was determined about was that Stubby not be forgotten. And so when Stubby died of old age, natural causes, in 1926, it's a little bit. Not everybody can quite wrap their head around this, but his decision was to have Stubby preserved by a taxidermist. And so Stubby's remains ultimately found their way to the Smithsonian Museum. And you can go see Stubby or what remains of him, assuming the museums are open during the time of COVID. But they Someday will reopen. you'll be, go, be able to go see Stubby. <laughs> yes, they will reopen. And he is one of the few artifacts on display from World War One. And forgive me for calling Stubby an artifact, but it's a relatively modest exhibit within the larger exhibit in the National History Museum about America at war. But Stubby is prominently featured there. As he should be. He's not the only hero, but if we have a hero who can symbolize the sacrifices that were made and the many lives he saved, not just alerting soldiers that uh, there's mustard gas coming or finding medical help for a wounded soldier, but every soldier's life he saved means one more troop on the front lines to keep pushing back the Germans that had taken over France and you're saving the lives of civilians and, and helping to end the war. That's right. And on some sort of a, a very simple level, you're a therapy dog yes. um, in the trenches and beyond, even back in the States. Yeah, just keeping people moving forward with their lives, whether it's mm -hmm. on the battlefield or back home. 
And what was his life like, aside from the reunions and events that he was attending in those years uh, after World War I? You know, he lived with Robert Conroy, mostly in Washington, D.C. Robert Conroy worked in a congressional office, and Stubby would, from time to time, go with him to work. He remained adept at picking up skills, and he became a mascot for two different football teams, predominantly the football team at Georgetown, which at that time was known as the Hilltoppers. Again, the tall tale thing. I've found so many things to be true that at this point, maybe this one is too, but we're told that Stubby was the original halftime show at football. He learned how to chase a football around on the field and run up to it, butt it with his head, and then run after it again. And that became the halftime show, these post-World War I football games in um, at Georgetown. Even if that is a fabrication, what we know to be true about Stubby makes it plausible that this isn't well, a tall he, tale. He, it's perfectly reasonable to assume he could have done that. Even if he didn't, what, he could have. Well, he did do the mascotting. He's pictured in a year. But as far as being halftime entertainment? Halftime entertainment? I don't don't know. He's smart enough to learn all these other stuff, things that he figured out on his own. He's definitely smart enough to be trained to knock a football around for a couple minutes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. An amazing dog. After the books were published, did you get any feedback now that you're putting Stubby back out into the world again? After the books were published, I was contacted by someone who wanted to correct a factual error. And he was the grandson of one of Robert Conroy's sisters. He straightened me out when the book was reprinted. We made the correction. But he didn't know his cousins from Robert Conroy's descendants. So this cousin that appeared to me and Kurt, the grandson of Robert Conroy, had been living in New York City basically their entire adult lives, not that far from one another, if I remember correctly, but had never met, didn't know one another. And so the book actually helped to reconnect these two strands of the family too. So that was, you know, just, you know, Stubby just doesn't stop working. His work is never done. No. His work is never done. For anyone who wants to read the story of Stubby, again, there are two books to choose from. There is Sergeant Stubby, about how a stray dog and his best friend helped win World War I and stole the heart of a nation. And there's Stubby the War Dog. I'm going to link to both of these books in the description for this episode. I would just encourage anybody who's interested in finding the books, you can find them easily through online booksellers or wherever you get your books. And you can certainly order them through the links at my author website that any of those options, I encourage people to support whatever bookseller they prefer. And I'm going to save people some unnecessary uh, legwork. Don't buy the children's book now for your child and then circle back 10 years from now to get the adult version. Just go ahead and buy them both now. I would encourage that. I actually think, especially at this time when we're very homebound, it's a perfect parent-child read Mm -hmm. because mom and dad can read the adult book and have background information that may help with questions. But the children 
will enjoy the simpler version and everybody will like the illustrations in the kids book because it's full color. There are pictures in both, but the children's book is gorgeous. It's like a coffee table book. And it will quickly become one of the favorite books of your child. And what a treat it will be when they're old enough to say, that book you loved when you were eight, now read this. And give them the adult version, let them take that deep dive into the fantastic story of of Stubby. Any other books that you're working on now? What's next? Because I'm guessing you have plenty of opportunity to do research. Yeah, ironically, most of the books I write about are, um, they deal with social justice history. And I wrote the two Stubby books after I had done a pretty serious study of the last few months of Martin Luther King's life leading up to his death in Memphis. And I came to see that Stubby had been a therapy dog for me, too, because I had written a number of books on tough subjects by then, and I kind of needed a little puppy love. Mm -hmm. And I got that with this research, and that has sustained me through a number of additional books. I have a book coming out in January about some social justice history from World War II that involved some travel in Europe that was very meaningful. And I stay busy. You know, this is my job. This is what pays the bills and really feeds my spirit, too. So I'm extremely fortunate to have this work. I'll just give a plug, too, before we go to a website called Sergeant Stubby Salutes. And this is a website that's maintained by the family, the descendants of Robert Conroy. And it's an effort to connect contemporary issues related to military service and service animals and service animals for other types of trauma. And it's a very vibrant, active website, Sergeant Stubby Salutes, lots of blog posts and and just insights into just the power of the human and dog connection. I will link to all of that in the description for this episode. And the story of Stubby will live on thanks to your hard work and the hard work of Robert Conroy's family. And I want to thank you for doing that and for taking time to share that story with our listeners. Absolutely. And thank you for your interest in Stubby in particular, but for all the work that you're doing with the Rosie Fund. I'm really impressed with what you're doing and it's appreciated. Thank you. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Ann Bossom for joining us today. The description for this episode includes links to all the websites we discussed, including annbossom.com, that's A-N-N-B-A-U-S-U-M.com, and sergeantstubbysalutes.org. Next time on Dog Words, president and co-founder of Pet Tech Productions Incorporated, Tom Soames, discusses pet CPR and first aid training. Thank you to Alternative String Duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info, download their music on iTunes, and check out fiddlelife.com to learn to play the fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. And remember, if you live in the Kansas City area and would like to host a small and socially distant outdoor concert in your backyard or on your porch, you can be part of The Wires Underground Concert Series. Contact them at thewiresduo at gmail.com. 
As always, please download, subscribe, rate, and share dog words. Subscribe to the Rosie Fund YouTube channel and follow Rosie Fund on Facebook and Instagram. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions, including ideas for topics and guests at rosiefund.org. And let us know if you would like to be a sponsor of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening. And remember, we save each other. Thank you.